Let's all stand together at this time as we reverence the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking in James chapter 2 today at a message I call simply Saving Faith. Saving Faith. James chapter 2 and verse 14. What does it profit, my brothers, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can faith save him? And may God bless the reading of His Word today is my prayer. You may be seated. <clears throat> Today we'll be considering the subject of saving faith. Uh, there can be no greater subject uh, for any one particular message than this one to talk about uh, how that we come to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, saving faith. Now James asked uh, what we call a rhetorical question in this passage. That is, it's a question that answers itself. And I want to tell you right now, though we'll mention it again, uh, that the answer, that the question that he asked demands a no answer in this context. Uh, and you'll see how that plays out as we go along. Uh, but we might be responded then to answer uh, James's question with a lot of other passages of Scripture. I just pulled out two or three, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Isn't that a great passage? Acts 16, 31, this is the time where a Philippian jailer cried out to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. John chapter 5 and verse 24, Jesus speaking here said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. That's the positive. But then he gives us the negative side of that too. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now James will affirm this same thing in his own epistle in James chapter 1 verse 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. And yet we have this question, can faith save him? I remember one of my seminary professors recounting a story that he had or an experience that he had had uh, with a lady he was talking to one time and she said, you know, Paul was a Baptist, but James was a Methodist. Uh, and I, I don't mean by that to disparage either Baptist or Methodist, okay? I'm just telling you that's what she said. And, uh, and, and she was kind of implying that James believed one thing and Paul believed something else. I want to tell you right up front that nothing is further from the truth. However, James chapter 2 does require some careful consideration. You have to think as you're reading it. You have to know what he's saying and who he's talking to and why that he's making these statements and what his argument is. I can tell you right up front that uh, there's a lot of people who just love to latch on to our text this morning, the very passage that I've read to you, and deny that faith is sufficient to save us. Uh, but we're going to talk about that today, saving faith, and also <laughs> uh, 
uh, I, I tell you, I, I have a rule that I, I teach in homiletics, which is the preparation and, 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 and delivery of sermons. And that rule is that when you get to a certain point in your sermon, you put a period and make it a two-part series. And that's what I'm going to do uh, because I'm going to tell you, I had more ground to cover than I could cover this morning. I'm going to get along as far as I can, but part of it we're going to have to save next week. So saving faith part one and saving faith next week part two, I'll tell you ahead of time. Uh, but I want you to know a little bit about James. Uh, James was the brother of the Lord Jesus. That's this James. You'll remember there was an apostle James. He was the first uh, of the apostles who, who died in the New Testament, killed by Herod. And uh, James, the brother of John. Well, this one was James, the brother of Jesus. And John chapter 7 tells us something about James. Uh, Neither did his brethren, John chapter 7 and verse 5, believe in him. Uh, James and the rest of Jesus' brothers uh, did not believe on Jesus until after the resurrection. And uh, so James grew up with Jesus. Let me just ask you right quick, how many of you would like to have Jesus for an older brother? Can you imagine that? Hey, Jesus, let's go out and let's skip temple today and we're going to go out here and play. Don't you want to go with us? No, no. And I'll tell you something else Jesus wouldn't do. He wouldn't cover for him either. (laughs) How would you like to have Jesus for an older brother? Jesus himself would tell us a prophet is not without honor. That is, a prophet has honor everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own kindred. He was living that out because his brothers were unbelievers. James grew up with Jesus in the same home he grew up in. Jesus was his older brother. It would be after the resurrection that James would become a believer. But remember, James was a Jew just like Jesus was. He was raised in a devout family arguably the most devout family that ever existed. Because remember, his mother was the one that gave birth to the Messiah and his father, stepfather, Joseph, was the one God picked out to raise him. It tells you something about this family. He was a Jew. He was raised in a devout family. He was steeped in the Old Testament law of Moses. But he was unsaved. He was not a believer. He had faith. He did. But it was not saving faith. He believed in God. But he was lost. He knew Jesus. (laughs) He knew him really well. But he was lost. It was only after he saw the resurrected Lord, and Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it was only after he saw his resurrected brother that he believed. That means James is qualified to discuss with us the subject of saving faith. Now, he's going to address himself uh, to the Jews generally who were a part of the 12 tribes who were scattered abroad. 
Much of what he's going to say in this passage of Scripture applies primarily to them. But by extension, it also applies to us. And the reason for that is simple. If there is a saving faith, and there is, there is also presented very clearly in this passage a faith that does not save. James had lived out both of them. He had a faith that didn't save him. But then there came that time where he saw the resurrected Lord Jesus and he believed on him. Now we know that there is a faith that saved. I've already given you a number of passages. Well, let me give you one more. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. There is a saving faith. I guess that makes uh, the two times that James mentions the name of Jesus in his epistle really stand out for us. Look what he said. Right in, in James chapter 1 and verse 1, uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand what it meant for him, brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus, to say that he is Lord and Christ? And that he served him. So much so that when he identified himself and gave his credentials for writing this epistle, he said, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Servant of God, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's me, James. I'm a servant. Slave. Uh, the other time that he mentioned him is in James chapter 2 and verse 1. My brethren... And remember, he's writing to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered abroad. And he says, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Amen, James. You see, James, James got it. You understand that? I mean, he really got it. And though he grew up with Jesus without believing on him all the way up almost to the last year of his life, the last time, in fact, almost that they're mentioned in the gospel narrative was when they were making fun of him. Don't you want to go up to the feast? I thought you wanted to be known of everybody. When are you going to go? Why don't you go with us? You know, if you want to be known, if you want to be in the Messiah business, you need to get up there to Jerusalem, the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus wouldn't even go with them. He went privately himself. That says a lot. Not going to go, but then he went. And so in, there was this kind of a taunting, rejecting that relationship that went on between Jesus and his brothers. But now James is a 100% top to bottom, sold out, servant, slave. To the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, the Lord of glory. He's my Lord. 
So with this introduction then to the author of this epistle, James, the brother of our Lord Jesus and his audience, the Jewish people primarily scattered abroad. We're going to discuss then the subject of saving faith as this man presents it to us. Along the way, we're going to get some wonderful information about this faith and how it operates in us over the next couple of weeks. James began with what I called an expose. Verse 14, he, he goes on, he asks, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give him the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right up front, let me point out to you this morning that before anybody can ever be saved, they have to first understand that they're lost. And that is very difficult with people who are religiously lost. And there are a lot of them. There were a lot of them in James's day, and obviously he knew that because he was addressing himself to the 12 tribes of Israel, those who had rejected their Messiah, crucified him. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. That kind of Israel. And he addresses himself to them. He sends out this general epistle, this uh, letter that's just supposed to be spread abroad and dispersed abroad. One of the earliest of the New Testament letters. And he sets out then to prove to them that their faith was no more valid than his faith was before he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to do a great job of it. You see, these people, his audience, do have that kind of faith, a faith in God. They live that faith. They express that faith. They preach that faith. They contend for that faith. But that faith was not saving them. And he shows us how that plays out by bringing up an example. Here's a person who is Jewish. And he sees another Jewish person, another member uh, of the lost uh, sheep or the scattered sheep of the house of Israel. And he sees this person, uh, James says, naked and hungry. Now, they might not be completely naked. They're probably in tatters, uh, clothes that are all torn and worn out and just in tatters. We can see this person, a picture of a beggar uh, with worn out, uh, holy, uh, torn up clothes. And uh, you can look at them and tell... Uh, their emaciated body, they're starving. I mean, that's the kind of beggar that we associate with being a beggar. Have no clothes to speak of, just rags hanging off of them and starving. So this brother there, this Jewish guy, sees this other Jewish person and he is uh, uh, starving and his clothes don't look good and he's obviously asking for help and he says to him, go your way, be you warmed and filled. Be warmed and filled. Now, the essence of that is a faith response. What he has told his naked and hungry brother is, you need to trust God. Leave me alone. I'm not going to help you. Ask God to help you. You know, your faith will help you. Go. Leave me alone. Get away from me. I'm not going to help you. Now, this must have been a common problem because Jesus brought up the same thing. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told? 
of, of the man who was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves. And first of all, a priest that is an active priest passed him by and didn't help him. He saw him, he looked at him, saw he needed help, but didn't. And then came a Levite. That is, he was a member of that priestly tribe, but he was not apparently active in the priesthood at that moment in time. But he also, both of them, religious leaders, both of them completely familiar with the law, but both of them passed him by. And a Samaritan then of all people came and picked him up and took care of him. Jesus was telling that story in response to their discussion of what James calls in this very passage the royal law. And the royal law says that we are to love God with all our heart and love our neighbors ourselves. And that's a shortened version, okay? Love God and love your neighbor. And so they ask him, well, who then is my neighbor? We want to nail this down. <laughs> and Jesus described that then our neighbor, obviously, is that person who is in need that we see, that we come in contact with. Our neighbor, in, in, in actuality, in that passage, represents all of humanity. So, apparently this was a common problem. Nobody suggested uh, that Jesus was wrong in his, uh, in his discussion. Uh, I don't think anybody would argue with what James is saying to them there. Yes, this is a real problem. Remember, he is talking to them about their faith. But in order for them to understand that they're lost, they're going to have to understand that their faith is somehow deficient. Now this idea then of helping those who were less fortunate, especially your brothers and sisters in, in, in Christ or, or brethren in the Jewish family, was such a big deal in the first century uh, that when they had a big... Uh, 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 convention, if you will, a big association meeting when they called all the apostles together and the churches came together and the leaders all came together to decide whether or not that the Gentiles had to be circumcised and keep the law. And I'm glad that decision was made in the negative. But once they, they nailed that down and said, no, we're not going to require believing Gentiles to keep the law of Moses. Don't have to do that. But they did require of them one thing. Only that they, verse 10, should remember the poor. There were other things in that letter that they ended up sending out, but this was prominent. And this is the one that Paul mentions in Galatians 2 and 10. Remember the poor. Don't misunderstand me this morning. James was not saying that helping the poor would save them or that refusing to help the poor would condemn them to hell. What he was saying was that the, there was a chronic problem of selfishness and a lack of compassion for other people that indicated that they were violating that part of the commandment that says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so while their faith taught them that they were keeping the law, Yet even on that most important, that most critical section of the law that Jesus said on this hangs all the law and the prophets, love God, love one another, they were falling miserably short. And he's going to drive that point home with them by saying then, whosoever should keep the whole law and yet offend in one point 
was guilty of all. They had a faith in God. Now notice, it's, it's, it's important to notice this. Their faith had not changed their hearts. Their heart was still selfish. Their heart was still absent of any compassion. They did not help one another. They were cold and calloused. And you know, John is going to spend a pretty much big part of his whole first epistle, First uh, John, talking to us, if you don't love your brother, what does that say about your love for God? Same thing, see, he's getting across. Now, James anticipates some pushback on this, so he responds to their anticipated answer in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? James, you see, sees his audience then defying his preaching by pointing to their works that they boasted of. And their works were many. There were the works of their religion. They were the works of their law. They were the works, the outworking of their faith. We believe in God and we believe the approach to God is by keeping the law of Moses. And there were all sorts of regulations, all sorts of rituals, all sorts of observances that they had to have their whole life from what they wore to what they ate to who they could be friends with to whose house they could go in. Everything about their all about their life was regulated by their faith. And so they would say to James, James, well, y'all are all about faith, but we're all about works. But James doesn't take a bit of that. Because he says, you show me your faith, what? Without your works. You see, the works of the law were not going to get it for him. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And the fact that they were keeping all of their Jewish rituals, the fact that they were not eating all the things the law forbid, and they were only eating then the things that the law allowed, the fact that they wouldn't go into a Gentile's home, the fact that they wore the right kind of clothing, the fact that they didn't do things to their body like cutting themselves or tattooing themselves all the time, and all the other things that the law forbid them to do. And I'm telling you, there were 600 plus laws and regulations in the law of Moses. Pretty long list. So when they pointed to their works, they had a bunch of them. But the works of their religion was not showing up in the way they treated their brothers and sisters. They had no compassion for one another. They had no love for one another. And though they served God, they didn't love Him. Paul was a Pharisee. He advanced even further in the Jews' religion than James did. He also could talk about that time when he had a faith, but that faith had not saved him. And he does so in Philippians chapter 3. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. 
circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisees concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching with the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. You see, Paul categorizes all of those works of the law that he had done, not as a prophet. Every businessman in this church understands the language he employs. It was not a prophet. It was a loss. All those works that he was doing in, in his law not only did not make him more righteous, they made him less righteous. They did not get him further to God. They made him away, further away from God because they were trusting in those works to make him right with God. He was absolutely convinced, Paul was, as James was, that he was righteous in God's sight because he was keeping the works of the law. This is why James hit them so hard about their refusal to help their brothers who were hungry and cold and hurting. They were violating the very essence of the law. Though they made their boast of God and could say with a straight face concerning the righteousness which is the law, I'm blameless. They could say with the rich young ruler we talked about uh, last week, all these things have I kept since my youth up. I've been doing this since I was a baby. He would go on then and confront their monotheism. Yes, they were monotheistic. They believed in the one true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Yes, they believed in him. But he tells them that that faith was not saving faith. Why? Because even the devils believe that much. The devils believe in the one true God, and they're really scared of him. <laughs> Isn't that good to know? They were seeing then the appeal of the Christian faith and they responded to it by pointing to their religious works of the law because that was their faith. So James is pointing out to them that the saving faith is one that will produce a change of heart that shows up in our works as we serve God because we love Him and we serve our brothers and sisters in Christ because we love them. James said it, I will show you my faith. By my works. Oh, it's a great passage. So he is out to expose the deficiency of their faith, and he does so by hitting them hard about the way they treated other people, especially those less fortunate than them. Then he gives us a couple of examples. Was not Abraham, verse 21, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. He was called the friend of God. That's worth repeating. <laughs> you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Second example, likewise, verse 25, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. <laughs> I'm not sure that James could have picked any two more divergent examples of faith 
than Abraham and Rahab, the patriarch and the prostitute, right here in front of us. That's about as far apart as they could get. Abraham believed that God would provide himself with a sacrifice. The Bible tells us clearly, and as they were starting up Mount Moriah with Isaac, not a little boy, but a grown man, and carrying the wood for the sacrifice. Where's the, where's the sacrifice? God will provide himself with a lamb. And of course, that's exactly what he did. He showed him that ram who was caught by the thorns. He had a crown of thorns on his head, caught in a thorn thicket. It had been many years before that that Abraham believed God and it was accounted. That means it was credited to his account as righteousness. We know that to be true. So did James. So did James. But Abraham's faith was put to the test with Isaac and he passed the test. And because of that, he was known as a friend of God. Where do we see that in Scripture? Isaiah 41 and verse 8. But you, Israel, are my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. How would you like to have God call you my friend? My friend. That is a testimony. God said, Abraham's my friend. Rahab was a prostitute who lived on the wall of the ancient city of Jericho. Her story is told in Joshua chapter 2. Abraham's story, of course, in the book of Genesis chapter 15 and onward. Uh, Rahab was raised in paganism and idolatry. She was a Gentile. She was a Canaanite. As a citizen of Jericho, she was under the condemnation of God. God had pronounced sentence upon that city that everybody in it was to be killed. But Rahab had heard of Israel's God. She believed on what she knew of Him. Had she kept that belief to herself, she very likely would have died with everybody else in the city of Jericho. But she saw those spies. She took them into her house and hid them. She was able then to let them down and get them out by another way. And she hung that scarlet line, that scarlet rope cord out of her window to mark her house so that when the armies of Israel came, her and her family was spared. The writer of Hebrews mentions Rahab as well in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 31. Those of you who may not know, Hebrews chapter 11 is commonly called the roll call of the faith. It brings to up all of the great heroes of the faith and one of them it's this one. By the way, both of them that James mentions as example are also mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Just a little aside this morning, by the way, Matthew mentions five women in the lineage of Christ. Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, is number one. Rahab is number two. Bathsheba, called in that passage Uriah's wife, is number three. Ruth is number four. And, of course, Mary. Think about that for a while. 
So the examples then of people who believed and their belief then translated itself into their works was Abraham and Rahab. Then he gives us the explanation. Verse 22, do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or completed. And the scripture was fulfilled. It was fulfilled. Which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified in this sense by works and not by faith only. Now the word accounted means credited to an account. There was nothing in Abraham, you see, that was righteous until he believed. And that faith was credited to him, counted unto him as righteousness. The writer of the book of Hebrews shows us this principle again and again in, verse, in chapter 11. But mainly when he starts talking about how he's like me, almost out of time. I'm, 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 I am way out of time. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not sorry. <laughs> but I'm, I, I will hurry. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Uh, for right now all we can do is notice the verbs. By faith. They subdued kingdoms. They worked righteousness. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. Uh, before that, you can go back and read through and see how that uh, Moses, uh, Moses refused to be called uh, uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter and forsook Egypt. Uh, you'll talk about how Abraham went out, Noah built, Enoch walked, Abel offered. The verbs are all over those passages. It's a discussion of faith. Yes. But along with that faith that saved them, there were the works that was an evidence of that. If we're not real careful, we'll miss the whole point of Hebrews 11 and, and really the whole point of James chapter 2. Now faith in Hebrews 11 and 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtain a good testimony. Testimony. So that their faith was not just something on the inside, something they believed. It wasn't just a lot of religious works and rituals that they went through. Their faith changed them, and you saw it in what they did. We'll talk more about that next week. But for now, I want to finish up with a couple of quick things. First of all, saving faith is shown and seen. Saving faith is shown and it is seen. We see that over and over again in Hebrews chapter 11. It is shown. That is, we, that person who has it shows it. And the people around them then can see it. <laughs> Saving faith. I cannot look in your heart. But saving faith is shown and seen. 
Great passage to finish up on Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And the question primarily that we're going to address as believers in Christ as we approach this passage again next week is is that great question. Is our faith then, or or, or our works, is our life, let's put it that way, is our life, is our works, is the life that we're living, is it a, a testimony to our faith? Is it a compliment to our faith? Or does the life that we're living serve as a contradiction to our faith? Does the life we live, is it a compliment, is it a testimony to our faith? Or a contradiction to our faith? Uh, This is big stuff for us. And I know this is kind of a heavy hidden sermon. And I knew that. Folks, we live before, we stand before a world, a watching world. We live in a world. And I'm afraid that this world is filled with a lot of those who are religiously lost. A lot of them. They have faith. They're believers. But their faith does not show up in any way, shape, form, or fashion in the life they live. And if you happen to be in this service today and you are a person, maybe you made a profession of faith as a child. Maybe you were raised in church like I was. But the big question is, has it changed your life? Has it changed your life? Let's stand together.